You're now at 28 Dean Street, where the Marxes lived from December 1850 to September 1856. As at number 64, this was a two-room flat, though after about a year, they were able to add a third room, which became Marx's study. Although this was still very little space for a household of six or seven, the Marx's financial situation did improve somewhat during their time at this address. This was partly because, from 1852, Marx found regular work writing articles for the New York Daily Tribune, which had a circulation of 200,000, making it the largest newspaper in the world at this time. The paper's editor, Charles Donna, had been in Europe in 1848 and had met Marx in Cologne. American interest in European affairs was high at this time, partly due to the revolutions, but also because of the high and continuing immigration to the United States that was then coming from Ireland, Germany, and other European countries. Donna's politics, and the editorial lines taken by the Tribune, were anti-slavery, against capital punishment, critical of free trade, and interested in European socialist movements. This intersected with Marx's own views well enough for him to be taken on as a European correspondent for the paper, and he wrote hundreds of articles in the decade up to 1862, when he was finally dropped by the paper because American readers had understandably become distracted from European affairs by the American Civil War. Gareth Stedman Jones elaborates. Well, it's fascinating, really, how they manage. But they evade bills, they get these bequests. Eventually, of course, he starts working for the American newspaper, the New York Daily Tribune, which, by the end of the 50s, I think had a larger circulation than any other paper in the world. So this wasn't a mean assignment, as it were. And they very much like... Marx's contributions, I think, because he is an anti-capitalist, they're anti-free trade. And the two things overlap to a certain extent, because what Marx thought was just the condition of capitalism, they thought it was the conditions created by free trade and the refusal to do anything to sustain local populations or the working class of a particular country or whatever, or particular industries. So... The two things overlap. When there is finally another outbreak of crisis in 1857-58, Dana, who is the editor of the New York Daily Tribune, sacks nearly all his European correspondents and is used quite a lot, except Marx and one other person. So he obviously felt thought quite highly of the sort of analysis that he produced. As a result of 1848, of course, there's a lot of American interest in what's going on in Europe. But as the 50s carry on, and as the drama of political conflict at home gets more lively, then there's less interest in European events, so he's having to write less. Marx's decade working for the New York Daily Tribune brought benefits other than an increased income. It helped him to hone his written English, which in the early 1850s was so bad that Engels had to regularly translate and edit, or even simply write, Marx's articles before they were sent off to Donna in New York. Just as importantly, in order to produce relevant and well-informed articles on current political and economic affairs, Marx availed himself of the facilities at the British Museum Reading Room, the precursor to today's British Library. The Reading Room had a wealth of material, including books on subjects of interest like history and economics, a host of newspapers and magazines, and the famous Blue Books containing reports and official statistics from the British government. This was all extremely useful for the resumption of Marx's economic studies, 
and provided the primary material for works like The Critique of Political Economy, which was published in 1859, and Capital, the first volume of which appeared in 1867. Well, Marx gets his museum ticket. This is a great liberation for him because they're living in a very small and overcrowded apartment with young children. So it's a miracle that he managed to get anything done at all in those circumstances. I mean, the museum was a marvellous facility for him because, first of all, it meant that he could resume his studies of political economy. I mean, his project throughout his life, really, was to produce the critique of political economy. He wasn't, as it were, committed to having a whole different theory of history. It was to question the credentials of political economy and to show that it could be read when put together with Hegelian approach to history as showing that the capitalist economy had entered a moment when it had performed its historical task, as it were, and was now going to enter an increasingly dysfunctional phase. He associated that with the coming of the factory and steam power, which meant that the ratio of capital equipment to living labour had shifted And since it was a premise from which he started that profit could only arise from living labour, this meant that living labour was playing a smaller part in total production, and this led him to come to a conclusion, which is already there in political economy for different reasons, that capitalism or commercial society was subject to a falling rate of profit. And that's the major idea of what's going to happen to capitalism which occurs to him or he comes to endorse in the late 1850s he writes his first sketch 800 pages of it called the Grundrisse in 1857-58 he had done a little bit of reading he came over with Engels to Manchester in 1845 and he had done a little bit in Brussels, but actually his access to books was fairly limited. So one of the things he can do is to read through the corpus of political economy. Having said that, his reading is much more selective than we originally thought. I mean, he read the first edition of Ricardo's Principles because on that he could base his labour theory of value. But actually, Ricardo comes up with a whole set of qualifications in the second edition. He ignores all those, and he uses an even cruder textbook version of Ricardo made by McCulloch. However, he at least is reading all these political economy authors. So that's part of what he's doing in the museum. But the other thing, of course, is that he is contributing to earning his living, which is writing for the New York Daily Tribune. And the museum is a tremendous resource because, first of all, it means he can read what we now call the blue books. He can read all sorts of official reports. He can read all the back numbers of The Economist. He can read various reports of medical officers of health to talk about conditions and so on. And when he's covering foreign events, like in Paris in the 1850s, there's this whole excitement about the new, the crédit mobilier, the whole idea of building up capital accumulation from small savings and so on. And so he does his research on that. He can read French newspapers as well as English. And so what that gives is a very firm factual basis for what he's saying. This is particularly interesting, I think, in the case of where he has no direct experience, like his writings about Asia and India. Clearly, he 
in the museum, for instance, he reads James Mill's history of the British in India and, you know, relies on or shares some of its assumptions. He reads up on China a bit for the Taiping Rebellion. There are political upheavals in Spain in the mid-1850s, which he reads up on. So what he's giving the readers of the Daily Tribune all the time is a quite learned, almost lectures, on how to read the meaning of these European events. Marx produced all this work in fits and starts. He struggled to meet deadlines for New York, and his perfectionism caused him to expand and delay his own projects. This made for irregular working habits, as one spy's report describes. He leads the existence of a real bohemian intellectual. Washing, grooming, and changing his linen are things he does rarely, and he likes to get drunk. Though he is often idle for days on end, he will work day and night with tireless endurance when he has a great deal of work to do. He has no fixed times for going to sleep and waking up. He often stays up all night and then lies down fully clothed on the sofa at midday and sleeps until evening, untroubled by the comings and goings of the whole world. This return to intellectual endeavor did not mean that Marx was fully cut off from more practical political activism. In the 1860s and 1870s, he was one of the leading figures in the International Workingmen's Association, which had its initial headquarters at 18 Greek Street, where we'll head now. Turn back down Dean Street and take the first left onto Bateman Street. From there, you'll take the second right onto Greek Street. Number 18 will be on the left-hand side of the street. It's currently occupied by the Zebrano Bar and Restaurant, and it has a plaque dedicated to the 20th century comedian Peter Cook above. <laughs> 